everybody uh my name is david owens and i'm simon skinner and uh we are the birthday bros so i'm simon skinner i've played in the league for this is my 14th season in the kvkl uh, i have two championships under my belt 2012 and then last year 2017 hoping to get another one this year yeah and uh i'm dave owens play on the woost uh the reason you guys are here uh, is for our guest uh, we have a uh, sports psychologist, Dr. John Gassaway. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Certainly. Yeah. So um, my name is Dr. John Gassaway. I've got a clinical psychology degree um, doctorate with a concentration in sport and exercise science. So kind of that sports psychology concept, but um, with the clinical psychology component as well. Um, my journey into psychology was kind of the psychology and sport background, um, played a lot of soccer, um, went over and played in Germany a little bit. Um, and then psychology was an undergraduate degree and started doing some personal training as well. Um, and so the personal training while I was over in Germany, I started running a fitness studio and it was really very, very, um, kind of rewarding in a lot of different ways. But what I noticed kind of missed the mark was the psychology component wasn't there. And so that's what kind of got me into the sports psychology part of it is helping other people to reach their potential, not just physically, but psychologically as well. That's awesome. Yeah, Simon, uh, soccer player most of his life, myself also, soccer player. It, it translates okay over to kickball. So if you ever want to come out, let us know. <laughs> Thank you. So our league, okay, it's a giant community. Uh, it is 36 teams uh, that range from probably Division One athletes, uh, so like personal trainers, things like that, to the very opposite end of the spectrum. No exercise all week. Sunday rolls around. They hop up off the couch because they know they can go drink a couple beers and have a good time. Nice. So we, we, yeah, I mean, it is. It's a great community. Um, what do you see as far as mentalities? Like, how do all those things in your mind work together? Maybe how, what type of conflict can you see? Just as far as, like, the different types of uh, personalities or the different types of, uh, I guess, how you would define some of those people with their mentalities. Well, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is just thinking of the individual within the team, but then also the team itself. So, you know, you look at the individual and you look at what their expectations are for you know, participation, and then what sort of investment they have in that participation. And certainly, you know, with the spectrum you described, it's going to be a huge difference. And so the individual kind of getting into a team, if you have a team where the majority of the individuals or players already on that team are kind of high, high expectation, high investment, and that player is not, then I could definitely see there being a little bit of conflict there. Um, and then in terms of, you know, if you look at the bigger picture with the teams playing each other and seeing, you know, which teams kind of have which personalities and, and how those personalities come out in the performance. Um, I think if you broke it down into kind of what each individual's goal is, whether it's, you know, having fun, socializing, having a beer or somebody who's more like, no, I want to increase my performance. I want to be the best athlete I can be or the best kickball player I can be and then individualize those goals. So best kicker, best defensive player, best pitcher, whatever it's going to be. But I think that, you know, just with that spectrum, it would have to be how the individuals kind of um, match up for the team that they're playing for. And then just obviously that they can get their goals and attain their goals on the weekend. So if my goal is to have fun and I come out and I have fun on the weekend, I'm gold. That's, that's all I wanted. But if my teammates are looking for me to do a little bit more, that's where there might be a little bit of conflict or strain. Yeah. So I think you actually just defined my team, go out and have fun on the weekend. And then you also defined Simon's team. Okay. The, uh, my, my team sits about just middle. 
we're definitely like one of the most lovable teams, unlike Simon's team. But <laughs> Simon's team is also like a top two or a top three somewhere in there. So uh, one thing that we do talk about is a lot of people like to drink beer. A lot of people like to have a, have a beer before the game just to calm the nerves. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Good way? Bad way? I think, you know, the, the beer before the game, I think I'd look at the purpose of the beer. So if it's, if it's social, if it's fun, it's for taste for people who like beer, I think all of that is awesome. I think that's, that's really a great way to kind of, you know, engage and do that. I, w- I would be hesitant to, you know, look at it as far as kind of calming the nerves and using it as a coping strategy, because I would look at the, the functional impact that would have on you. I mean, if, if you just kind of used the same sentence, but replaced, you know, kickball with work, like I have a beer before work to calm the nerves. It's like you would see that, okay, that seems like a problem, right? Uh, <laughs> probably depends on your job. <laughs> yeah yeah it depends on the job certainly no uh, it, yeah but I, I think that that's that's awesome for social for fun for for all those purposes and stuff but i think that if you're using it as a coping strategy that's where i think you would kind of enter a slippery slope and i would definitely be suggesting you know alternatives to kind of you know calm the nerves or do different things like that i think that's where i'd, I'd sit with that one i mean do you, do you do you care to share an alternative method oh by all means yeah so i think you know Again, depending on the team, you know, getting together um, and calming the nerves by, you know, doing a couple kind of warm up sessions, whether that means kind of like, you know, doing what you would imagine in gym in high school or with the division one athletes doing the kind of warm up that you're used to for whatever sport you play, stretching yourself out, uh, breathing exercises. There's plenty of those out there. There's all sorts of mindfulness techniques and everything like that. For some people, before a game, joking around is how they kind of calm the nerves and kind of get themselves set. For other people, though, they're going to be very um, very concentrated and very focused, and they don't want the person joking with them. And so, again, it's kind of like that team dynamic and how you kind of fit in there. But I think that there are so many different ways that you could kind of, you know, get into that. And I, I think that that's where, again, it's a slippery slope because it's not just a bad thing to have a beer. Like if you're having fun and joking around and you have the beer with it, that's fine. But if you're using the, the beer for the specific purpose of calming your nerves because you don't have other strategies or, you know, that seems to be the only way that it's kind of working, then that's where I think it's a slippery slope. I, th- I think you've kind of ruined the entire league for 90% of the <laughs> He did say... <laughs> if you're joking around having a good time, it's still okay. Yeah, that's true. But no, that's... and I'm all—I mean, I'm not against it. I'm all about it. I'm just saying that if, right. if it's if it's your only way of dealing with things, I think that that's where you start hitting the slippery slope. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and that's—I mean, and that's why we want to talk to you because I mean, obviously, there are better alternatives out there than drinking a beer. So it's, it's good to hear, and some people need to hear it. So it's good. Yeah. So uh, you talk about the concept of breathing. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And you've actually talked about that. I listened to one of your YouTube videos. So it was something that was brought up to me at a very early age. Like my grandmother was like, hey, you have a lot of anxiety while I was in school. I'm going to teach you this breathing technique. I mean, like it worked. Uh Like to this day, if I'm ever like real stressed, I'll go back to like focusing on as I breathe in, uh, either inhale or exhale my stomach, like just mix it up. And as I exhale, do the opposite. But I guess what what is the actual purpose of that? Well, so if we think about breathing, it's, it's something we do every day, all day in our sleep, you know, everything we do. So especially when somebody says, hey, I'm going to teach you how to breathe. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. You're like, yeah, okay, I think I got that covered. But when you think about the purpose of breathing for the different things that you're putting your body through, and then for regulating kind of how your body is either more intense or more relaxed, uh, breathing is just a, a vital component of that. If you look at the breathing and you think, okay, so for those of you who do exercise and do kind of like strength training and stuff, you learn how to breathe through the concentric or the, the actual part of the um, exercise where you're flexing or, or moving first. And then when you get back to rest is when you breathe out. And it, it's as soon as you start actually applying it, you start to realize that you have so much more power, so much more control, so much more duration and stability and, and stamina. And so with any sport, whether it's kickball, whether it's tennis, whether it's swimming, where you're not breathing much because you're underwater, everything, if you look at breathing and you can get a technique down that seems effective for you, you'd be surprised at how 
you know, effective it can be. Specifically thinking of kickball, I think that, you know, watching that pitch come down and if that pitch is coming and I have my breath under control and I realize that when I exhale and I kick the ball at the same time, I'm more effective than when I don't know where my breathing is or if I'm breathing in as I kick the ball, it seems to just do whatever it wants to do instead of follow what I'm trying to do you'd be surprised at how effective it can become. And then it can kind of lead into routines with different ways that you do things. Then if you're not so concerned about those things and all you want to know is just breathing is good or bad, then it's like, okay, well, breathing is good. And if you breathe quickly and shallow in your chest, that's going to kind of get you excited, but also anxious. And then it also doesn't provide as much oxygen to your muscles in your brain, but it can make you feel kind of energetic. And then if you want to breathe down in your stomach using your diaphragm, and do slower, more controlled breaths, then you're going to realize you're a lot more in control, a lot more relaxed, and you get a lot more of the oxygen flowing into your brain and your muscles, which makes it easier to think and easier to perform. Wow. Um, so off the field, I'm, I'm a speech language pathologist. And um, in when I was doing my master's, I had a, a, a student that I worked with who was a, you know, he was a track athlete. And he had a stuttering issue, and I actually worked with him on his breathing. That's what we primarily, every session we worked with is, is slowing down the breathing and uh, finding like the, the perfect kind of breathing um, that worked for fluent speech. So I feel like, I mean, you're hitting a, a good point that it's, it's kind of universal. Like just breathing can be applied to everything. Right. I mean, it's how we live. There you go. Yeah. When you stop, it's a bad thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so how about go back to mindset, uh, going into a game, winning mentality or a winning mindset. So I've actually heard of people visualizing like the perfect kick or I actually listened to like a e-sport. So like a video game sports psychologist. And he talks about like visually actually like beating your opponent. Like whether it be in like a boxing match, even though you're playing just a video game, I guess what what do, what do these things actually do for your your mind and your body? Well, and I think that's kind of two questions, so I could dive into one or the other. So one is the mindset, where it's kind of yeah. where you're setting your mind to something. The other is visualization or imagery. You know, that can be a component of it, but it's a little bit more specific. So I, I guess I'll start with mindset. Sure. So the mindset is kind of like if you're going into a game and you're going into it with the mindset that you're prepared, you're ready, you're um, confident, and, and really looking at confidence kind of from the perspective that if I look at three things, I know that my confidence is going to be very um, high and, and help me and be effective. And those three things for confidence would be one, looking for improvement. So when I go into a game, I want to say, in what way am I improving or what way can I see that I've improved? Okay. Number, number two would be effort, where it'd be like, okay, I want to make sure that I'm maximizing effort. I want to make sure that I'm not just kind of going through the motions. Um, and then number three would be consistency. I want to make sure that what I'm doing is consistent with the way that I've been training or the way that I see things going. And so if you go into a game with the mindset, going into any sort of performance with this confidence wrapped up into improvement, effort, and consistency, a lot of times that mindset leads to a lot of success. And it's because you're kind of preparing your mind and your body to kind of go into, if you want to call it battle, um, with the right kind of tools to equip you to kind of pay attention to the right things and measure yourself and judge yourself with the right things. Because if I'm judging myself over improvement rather than kind of looking at how I'm comparing myself to other athletes, if I'm kind of looking at myself and judging in terms of effort, just knowing that I'm there doing what I want to do. And then if I look at myself in terms of consistency, just knowing that, okay, and this is what I've trained to do, all of those things really kind of help with the mindset of going into a game and knowing that this is kind of what I've prepared myself to do. Sure. Then looking at the kind of visualization part of it, um, it's kind of visualization. We can go real deep into that. Like if you look at skill acquisition, so when you're first developing a skill, if you imagine yourself doing it, it shows that you actually get the skill down easier you have less kind of um, learning curve and then you also tend to kind of um, get through little kind of uh, slumps faster because you're visualizing kind of the correct action or the correct movement movement 
Then with visu visualization and execution, obviously that can really help with confidence because if you see yourself doing it and then you actually are able to, then that's showing improvement and it's showing your effort and it's showing the consistency. It's also great for stress management. So like kind of if, if you're stressed out about performing poorly and you visualize yourself playing well, you're more likely to play well. So do you think that when you are visualizing something like uh, sometimes when I go up to kick, I will visualize what my foot pattern is up to when my foot makes contact with the ball. Um, is that more just ensuring that my body knows the process or is that, or what is like, I know that you're saying like it helps to, you know, you to be able to do it and learn it faster. But when I do something like that, what, what am I gaining? I guess. So, right. So that would be kind of like the skill acquisition or skill development where you're kind of seeing yourself do it and you see the precise movements you want to make with your feet the step pattern and then where you make contact with the ball. Once you sort of master that and it seems to be going the way you want it to go, then you start actually using visualization a little bit more for tactic and strategy with kind of like, okay, so I know where my feet are going to be. I know how I want to make contact with the ball, but now I'm trying to create a strategy or a technique in which place I'm trying to place the ball after my foot makes contact with the ball. And, and so what you're doing is you're creating muscle memory where your muscles are actually learning the correct pattern, learning the correct way and the routine and consistency that you want it to have for making contact with the ball. And the more often you do that, the more the muscle memory is there, which means that it's less that you have to focus on when you're actually up to bat is you don't have to focus on those little things anymore because you've practiced it and you, your body has the muscle memory for it. So are you saying like, so when you actually visualize it, does that create, uh, does that create muscle memory just by visualizing itself or do you have actually have to do it? No, the just visualizing it will create the muscle memory. And it, what's even more crazy is they did a study where they had a bunch of people just imagine themselves doing bicep curls. They didn't lift any weights. They didn't change any of their routines. They kept their diet the same. It was very regulated, and they had two groups, the, the control group who didn't do any visualization but just kind of did their own thing, and then the group who did visualization. And just by visualizing doing bicep curls, they had 13% muscle gain after six weeks. What? Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was such a crazy study, they had to replicate it three times because no one believed it. They were like, no, you can't build muscle just by thinking about it. And you can. And, and so the muscle memory is, is there and, and you can actually build muscle by just thinking about it. Now, of course, this is, it, it's not as simple as thinking about it once. They had to think about it for five minutes, you know, really imagining themselves doing the curls. They had to imagine, you know, what was happening with the muscle and stuff. It's not just as simple as saying, I'm going to imagine working out for two minutes and then all of a sudden I'm, you know, Hercules. <laughs> so Simon right. and I doing this podcast is actually making us better at kickball. Uh, that That's what research would show. <laughs> John, uh, so what would you say as far as players on good teams versus players on teams that are kind of at the bottom of the league, what should the individuals on those teams be focused on? So, so then in, in the context of a good team or a bad team, it's who's performing better and winning games? That and also kind of correlates, but most of the top teams, they're kind of more competitive. They're more, they're more out there to win, not just to have fun. Whereas the bottom teams, you know, they, they're trying to win, but they're more just out there to, to have fun, socialize, uh, maybe not even drink beers, but just literally just, you know, have a social interaction and, and have fun doing something active. Just not good at it. <laughs> okay, so I think that it's, it's just the focus. So kind of reflecting back to the mix of players that you guys have, it's like, what are the goals of each player? What is the goal of the team? Um, and then how do they communicate that to each other, especially through, through team cohesion, just making sure there's those cohesive model that everybody's kind of adhering to. And so if everybody's there to have a good time, and you can actually focus on having a good time while, you know, kind of trying to play the best you can play, then you should kind of lead yourself into kind of playing more efficiently. If you're on a team that's a little bit more competitive and looking to kind of improve the team and improve the performance, then it's looking at communicating the correct tactic and strategy, making sure that consistency is there for what you guys are kind of there to do and just really kind of getting that focus in the right place. 
And I think a lot of times, you know, regardless of whether you play on a team that's not performing well or kind of in the lower end or a team that's, you know, competing for a championship, if you look at the process rather than the outcome, a lot of times you're going to be more confident and more successful. And what I mean by that is if you focus on the outcome is winning the game and that's all you're focused on. A lot of times it leads to kind of more stress, um, letdown, failure, all these other things. Whereas if you focus on the process, which is, well, did we follow the tactic or the strategy we had set out to, to follow? Did we, you know, um, play the way we wanted to play? So we had like, you know, we got a player forward on the bases rather than trying to have each player, you know, kick a home run every single time. It's what is the performance that we're looking at, and that will lead to the right outcome. So if everybody says, well, I followed my performance goal, the outcome kind of takes care of itself. I think that's a super valid point. So sometimes you have good players that join into the league that are on bad teams. So you have the competitive player that is on a not very good team. They want to win. It's difficult to win. And so... You're saying worry about the performance or what do you think their their best mentality may be in that situation? Right. So so I would just like you said, worry about your performance. Don't worry, worry about the outcome. So if I'm a good player and I'm playing on a team where I kind of feel like they're not up to my par, I focus on my own performance. So I'm like, OK, so if I'm focusing on my techniques, my strategies, what I want to do to make this team a better team not just in terms of winning, but in terms of how do we kind of get more cohesive as a team? How do we make sure that we make the plays that we want to make? Like, even if it's pointing out to a teammate, hey, plays at second, right? If that's all I said, that's my performance. I'm performing the way that I want to, to make sure that the team is focused on the right thing at the right time. So then if the team is focused on that, instead of making it an outcome, like saying, hey, guys, we got to get an out. Well, Okay, but if you say plays at second, okay, that's performance. That's something where you're saying, okay, let's pay pay attention to a particular thing rather than just saying like the outcome. And so I think that if you focus on those performance goals, you're going to be happier, even if you're on a team that's not playing up to your par. Sometimes what happens a lot in our league is you'll have a, you know, a a good team who has like one bad inning where they they kind of collapse and make errors and, you know, they'll say, okay, we got to shake it off. Uh, so what what would your advice be as far as methods to, like, shake it off? I mean, because you have a limited amount of time to kind of get that through the team's head. Like, we need to just get get past this and move on. Well, yeah, and also with that, of you're talking about individual performance versus, you know, worrying about a team. So I know that this is kind of multiple questions, but is it more of a internal focus for the individual player or is it more like the team as a whole? Yeah, I think, I mean, I could, I could talk about it from either angle. Um, Well, I guess since you were just talking about it kind of as the individual, you want to take that approach first and then, okay. Yeah. So, so from an individual athlete, I mean, we have that saying the best athletes have horrible short-term memory, so they're able to kind of get over things quickly. So if you make a bad play or you have a bad inning, it's kind of like, well, okay, let's, let's move past that. Um, And so there's, there's this concept called learned optimism. Um, which is actually kind of the opposite of what learned helplessness is, which is kind of going into depressive symptoms and stuff like that. But learned optimism is looking at something where it's like, whatever the issue was, it was temporary. So if you had a bad inning, well, it was temporary. It was one inning instead of looking at it like, you know, this is kind of going to be forever permanent. Um, then you look at it as an isolated issue, like, okay, so we had a bad inning because we missed one or two plays, but not the entire inning was horrible. It's an isolated issue. It was an isolated thing. So maybe I missed a catch. Well, that's one catch. That still means I moved to the right place. I was under the right um, position to catch the ball. I just didn't make that one (laughs) very important part of catching the ball. So it's an isolated part of my performance, not that I'm just a horrible player. It's isolated, but it also makes like everyone on your team angry. (laughs) (laughs) But again, from the individual's perspective, it's like trying to have that horrible short term memory. It's saying, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, shake it off or, or do what I need to do to kind of reset. And then you also look at it in terms of being kind of domain specific. And and that's kind of a hard way of saying uh, personal. I try not to take it personal. I try and just kind of say like, no, this was one 
thing. Like the players on my team could be pissed at me for dropping the ball, but they still like me as a person. They don't think that I'm a horrible person for what happened because they know I wouldn't have intentionally done that. Maybe. So, <laughs> you <would> hope so. <laughs> I guess you would really hope so. <laughs> but in terms of techniques, in terms of kind of like, how do I shake it off? How do I get through this? I mean, we could go back to the breathing. Um, there was a team I worked with um, where they did basically a reset button. And so if something went wrong, so let's say they are a kickball team and let's say they had a bad inning, they would all get together before the start of the next inning or before the bottom of the inning or whatever it is, whenever the transition from offense to defense, they would basically huddle up and they would say, we're going to hit the reset button. And what the reset button means is it means we're playing from zero. It's as if the game is starting right now or from scratch, everything is just kind of going right now. Um, and the beauty of doing this, especially if you practice it in practice, is that your mindset goes right back to your performance and what is important now, not what happened already and not what you're trying to do, but what you do right in this moment. Because when yeah. you start a game, it is at zero. And so all you have to do is worry about your performance at the start. And so trying to hit a reset button and shake things off the whole team would come together and do it. So that's kind of a team approach, but each individual would kind of have that mindset that this is something that is, you know, temporary, isolated, domain specific, and I'm just going to reset and be at zero. Sure. So I guess, you know, when you're talking about that, I, we obviously, we do, we see a lot of teams that, you know, it's seventh inning, we really got to come together. They huddle up like beginning of the game. Uh, Woost is for the children. Like that's what we always yell. <laughs> and you know and i mean it i think that's valid i it's sometimes like i think people do not realize what it actually does uh so i appreciate you know you kind of sharing this insight so what about the idea of when you worry about your teammates performance i know that you, this has all been individual focused but it could be defensively like all right we know this player is going to bunt the ball and i'm out in the outfield like me yelling hey I, we know they're going to bunt that's kind of the extent of what I feel I can do. Uh, is there a better, is there a better tactic or maybe worrying about like how somebody's going to kick things like that? Yeah, I think, you know, especially communication for the team. So if there's, if I'm playing the outfield and I know somebody's going to bunt and I know there's a particular player on my team who may not, they may be the target for the bunt because they know they're a weak link. You know, it's, it's talking to that player as a teammate and saying, Hey, when we're in this sort of a situation, how would you prefer, uh, prefer that I talk to you? What, what language do you want me to use so that you feel like you're part of the team? It's not me trying to kind of judge you. It's not me trying to kind of like put more pressure on you, but instead it's a, it's a way for me to encourage. And is there a language that I can use? Are there particular things I could say or particular things I can do that would make you feel like you're still part of the team and we're pushing for you and we just want you to be aware of certain things? Because a lot of times that player will usually kind of know that, okay, I know I'm not the best player. I know I'm a weak link. I know the ball's coming to me because they know that that's more likely that they're going to be able to get on base. And when they have that sort of backup from the team, they can get a lot more confident. And then it allows them to kind of focus more on what's going on rather than focusing on the judgment. So to give like a specific example, I do the lineup for my team. And the way I set it up is I have the leadoff kicker is, you know, since there's no one on base, he's not trying to advance any runners. He's just trying to get on. So he'll, you know, typically tries to kick a grounder to the shortstop and beats out the throw to one. If he happens to get out, um, the, the second player in the lineup, he's more designed to advance that, that runner. So for him, when that first guy gets out, he has, a tr he has trouble um, – he, he doesn't know what to do almost. Like he, he doesn't know – because normally he, what we do is kind of bunt up first base. But if he sees that the, the guy in front of him gets out, he'll try to kick away or try to kick a liner, but usually gets caught out. Um, so I guess what do you do when you have a strategy, a team strategy, like as far as lineup, as far as like, hey, this person does this, this person does that, when it kind of collapses on the front end? I guess how do you uh, – how do you cope with that? Well, if, if you guys do train, if you guys practice, it's practicing those kind of scenarios and practicing kind of what to do next, um, kind of like what is your role and then performing that role to the best of your ability. 
But I think what you're describing is one of the reasons that we love sport is because you can prepare everything. And then as soon as you're there, it could be that the preparation is not going to go according to plan. And it's what makes it interesting. It's what makes it exciting. And sometimes the worst. Yeah, true. <laughs> like, exactly. You planned and you prepared and then it just didn't work. Right. And, and so I think, again, it's, it's that communication and it's making sure that you're trying to be a cohesive team and trying to work on things together rather than trying to say, you know, you're a cog and I want you to perform your role as your cog. And then the rest of you is not really important. It's like, well, no one wants to be that, you know, so it's kind of like, OK, so how do we how do we kind of manage this and move forward? so that all of us are focused on the right things at the right times, but also not focused in a way where I feel like I'm being used, but rather that I'm a part of something bigger. Super valid. Do you have any like um, psychology be behind like adaptation, like as far as like adapting to changes like that, when something is thrown in your, your strategy, is there any like um, psychology behind that? Well, yeah. So you, Basically, we could kind of talk about the uh, fight or flight response. And so it's basically when you feel threatened, you have the body kind of turns on this fight or flight kind of um, process within the body. So it, it floods you with hormones, but they're not great hormones. They're, they're cortisol and different things like that that can lead to problems, especially if they're in high levels for high periods of time. But they're very effective in short periods of time because it's adapted for the body to either fight or flee some sort of a situation. And so the more you're capable of managing that, the better you're going to be able to manage adapting to different things that are happening within the game. Um, so again, practice, consistency, making sure you talk these things through, that kind of stuff. But different people have different personalities. And so there are those people who are going to fight. There are those people who are going to flee, which means just get me out of the situation as fast as possible. And then you actually have people who freeze, where instead of performing at all, they just kind of shut down. And it's, it's trying your best to kind of manage that process, which you don't have much control over how when it happens, but you have control over how you respond to it. And so it's kind of like if you looked at the, the way that the body's behaving, you'd have increased heart rate, you'd have the blood flowing to, to kind of the muscles to fight or flee, you'd have less blood flowing to the brain or the digestive system. What's interesting is you see the exact same biological things happening in somebody who's really excited and ready. So you would see the same thing from somebody on a roller coaster who enjoys roller coasters as somebody who is like fearful of heights and like at the Grand Canyon. They'd have the same biological response, but the way that their mindset and the way they're responding to it is completely different, where one is completely, you know, so enthralled and happy and, you know, those roller coasters, the coolest thing ever. And the other person is just freaking out and sweating bullets. So a crazy story is uh, one time I actually went skydiving the day of that I played a kickball game and I did not realize like the adrenaline that stayed with me the whole day. Like, yeah. I was like, I was like, man, this is the best I've ever played. And it just made me like, oh yeah, I did go skydiving. I did do something way out of the norm uh, to really get your adrenaline going and things like that. Yeah. And it's how you responded to it. So it's, it's, you took that and your mindset was, I'm, I'm so jazzed and I'm so like into it and, and everything that you used that as energy and you used it as a performance kind of tool rather than having it, you know, freeze or what, yeah. rather than having it kind of lead you to underperform. Well, let me, let me ask you this. So all season long, people, they are in certain situations of like, uh, all right, there, I'm the one kicker, or I'm the two kicker. And then sometimes they get in a situation where they are playing like maybe a team of very like for Simon's team, there was this scenario and we kind of talked about when, you know, if the wheels fall off the lineup, but sometimes I feel like also, people all of a sudden, they're like, hey, we've always done this successfully. Now we're in this big game. Now I feel like I need to be like, I need to be the star or the hero versus I need to do what I've been doing all season. What's the maybe the mentality behind that? Right. So that's, you know, when you're facing something and instead of sticking to routine and sticking to practice, sticking to what's been working, is you kind of get intimidated and then you start having doubt and then um, you might be telling yourself, well, this is a special occasion. So I'm going to, it's a make or break move. So I'm going to have to do something different. 
Um, and, and that's the kind of mentality where nine times out of 10, it's probably not going to work the way you want it to. Um, because you ju just look at the words, intimidated, doubt, you know, special occasion. And instead of telling yourself, no, this is what we've trained for. This is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to perform. Those are things that are more focused on kind of like what you want to do rather than, again, the outcome. Like th this is something that has to happen. Has to doesn't exist because we don't have that much control. Sure. Uh, all right. Yeah. So what about, I mean, I know that we've kind of touched on this, but the idea of short-term versus long-term goals, right? So winning the game versus me bunting to get on base. So what do you, do you recommend like putting pressure on yourself early on in the game being like, if I don't achieve this outcome, then we are going to lose the game. Well, you know, obviously putting that pressure on yourself probably isn't going to help the performance unless you're one of those people who responds to that kind of pressure in a great way. Um, and, and there are athletes who do that, you know, who, who put that pressure on themselves because they know that when they feel that way, that's when they perform better. But I think, again, focusing rather than the outcome, focus on the performance. So instead of saying I have to get on base, which is the outcome, it's like you were talking about with your feet. Like I want my feet to be in these positions. I want these certain step structure. I want to hit the ball a certain way, you know, those sort of things. If I focus on that performance, it's more likely that the outcome is going to be that I'm going to get on base. And so that short-term goal of getting on base, if you look at the performance broken down, it's probably more likely to be effective. So you talked a little bit about the whole like reset for a team, that team that you worked with, did they literally say, okay, like they got together and they're like, let's reset from zero. What, like, how did they get that message across? Like that we're starting from, we're starting over right now. Like we're going to forget what just happened in that game or what just happened in that inning. We're going to start over and we're going from here on. How did they get that message across? They, they had a particular routine. So basically what they would do is they'd get in the huddle and they had a distinct way of saying it. They had a distinct way of saying, you know, like everybody puts their hands in the middle and one, two, three, go, or one, two, three team or whatever you're going to do, but they would do it in practice all the time. So they would discuss what they were going to practice doing. Then they would go out and they would do that. And then they'd start practicing. And so they do it multiple times in practice. So everyone kind of started getting kind of this kind of routine and mindset that whenever we do that, it's just like practice. It's just like doing what we normally do when we're starting at zero. And so they do it at the beginning of a game. They do it, you know, if they needed to during a game. Um, but it's, it was a, it was the behavior of the, of performing that action, but the mindset of just telling yourself, I've done this so many times and every time it means the same thing. So I, I worked with a, a soccer club and I told them about it and they tried to do it like in the, <laughs> as soon as I told them about it, they tried to do it in the first game where they got scored on. All of them went to the center of their side of the field and they wanted to do the reset button and the coach was screaming at them because he didn't know what they were doing because they hadn't communicated that. So then of course they're feeling worse. They're feeling pressured now because they got to get back in position and kick the ball off. And they're feeling like, you know, what's going on here. And so if it's not practiced, if it's not something that you've kind of set a routine to, it's not going to be very effective. Right. Do you think like human beings in general are hardwired to kind of have that team mentality? Like, you know, I don't know, I guess if you look historically, like we had to hunt like woolly mammoths, do you think that that's just something in, in your research that you've done? Like, is that something that just is hardwired in humans to like kind of have that team mentality to, to overcome an obstacle? Yeah, it's, I mean, we're social animals. So, so we look for association and we look for um, support. And, and so you look at particular um, sports. So tennis, golf, gymnastics, boxing, wrestling, where it's just one person out there and they don't have anybody else out there to help them when something's not going right. And they don't have necessarily the people who help reward their performance by cheering them on and saying how awesome they are at the end, who's a teammate who was there with them on the field. Instead, they have a coach or somebody who observed. And so I think that, you know, as far as that being like innate, I think that all of us want the social aspect of it, but it's not necessarily that team sport is going to provide that unless we kind of foster that kind of, uh, cohesion and team atmosphere uh you bring up like the the concept of like practice 
and I would I would say there are maybe let's say what thirty percent thirty percent of the league may let's say less than that actually um, but I would say maybe thirty percent of the players invest time outside of kickball but maybe not as a team maybe ten percent or fifteen percent actually invested as a team so what might be a way of building that habit for the reset, so to speak, um, in a, I mean, in a less practiced environment? Well, it, w- it would be the same thing. It would just be that the practice would have to be the season. So it would be like every time you show up to the field, you guys are doing the same thing. You know, during, during the first game of the season, you do the same thing that you're going to do at the last game of the season. And it's, it's trying to get that kind of routine in there even if you're not doing it at practice or no individual is like visualizing this or doing this on their own outside. Cause all they want to do is show up and play. That's fine. Just make sure that the coach or the team themselves have decided that this is a particular strategy that they're going to adhere to. And then as you continue to progress, like you said, you've played for 14 years. If you stick to a particular team and that team continues to do the same thing consistently, it's going to become more and more effective over time. Very valid. Very valid. I guess I'd like to kind of just dive into what it is that makes a player a clutch player. So like muscle memory, mentality, obviously those things we learned go hand in hand. But what do you think it is that makes a person a clutch player? I think another part of it we've also touched on, which is like what you talked about with the skydiving and then just being like so full of adrenaline and it kicked in for the rest of the game. It's, it's kind of the way that you're responding to the adrenaline. So if somebody has the passion and the drive to say, I want the ball at the end of the game, or like, I want to be the person who can, you know, take this last play and make it something big, like that sort of mentality, that sort of passion and drive is the person who's going to be more of a clutch player. Um, and then experience, you know, the more experienced you are, the, the easier it is for you to kind of do some of those things, especially if you've been the experienced clutch player. So that's why you watch, you know, basketball and different things like that, where there is the player they give the ball to at the end of the game. So even the defense knows that's who the ball is going to. And it's the experience that the player has that allows them to kind of feed off of that and just kind of continue to thrive. Um, So turning yourself into a clutch player, it it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of confidence. One reason I I brought that up earlier about putting pressure on yourself Mm -hmm. in a like, all right, if I don't get on here, the game could be lost. Like, I've always been curious if that's something that can help make me become a better clutch player. Well, so if, if if, if you respond to that pressure in a good way, then yes, it'll, it'll make you a better clutch player. If you respond to that pressure by feeling like nervous and then you don't do your step count and you don't hit the ball where you want to and you're too focused on the outcome rather than focusing on what you're doing at the moment, then it's not going to help you become a clutch player. So maybe putting, I guess, putting the pressure on yourself and then focusing yourself back to like your in-game awareness of your step process and things like that. Right. And, and, but it, that has to be what you're used to. So, you know, a, a clutch player is going to stay consistent. So if those are not things that you've been intentionally focusing on, but instead you've just been on like focusing, on, I just want to have fun, man. And when you say, I just want to have fun, man, to yourself and you end up playing well, well, then that's what I would prefer that you continue to tell yourself where if you're like, well, no, I listened to this sports psychology guy on a podcast and he said I needed to focus on performance stuff. And then all of a sudden you're not playing well, it's probably because you're not focusing on what was effective before. So all of these are strategies that you can implement and all of these are strategies that can make you perform better. But they're things that, you know, you want to try and keep consistency with the way you're doing things. So if you decide to change part of your game as a clutch player, you want to try and make sure that that change is working effectively for you. So for yourself, the example you gave, if, if you got up to, to kick and you were focused on the stuff we kind of talked about in this podcast and you had an awesome hit and you got on base and the game kept going and you were like, that worked for me, then I would say continue to do that. If you find that you falter and it didn't work, then I want you to ask yourself, what was I doing before? Before I listened to this podcast, what was I doing that was effective? What was I focused on? And 
that's the big thing about awareness is everything starts with awareness and it's one of the most important parts of any sort of performance, but we very rarely pay attention to it. And it's just becoming aware of what are these little things I can pay attention to that actually give me more tools to work with. So as a, as a captain of my team, I have, you know, players, I have a wide variety of different players I have to deal with. And, you know, there are some there when they respond to strategy, like you, they might say like, well, I can't, do well in this situation even though I need them to do well in that situation so is there I guess is there a method of uh, approaching uh, players or individuals who um, I guess I don't know don't respond to direct instructions or like I don't know it's, it's kind of hard to 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 express what I'm saying but like how do, how do you approach a player who doesn't take well to coaching in general? So especially if they're focused on outcome, then, then that's an issue. So they're, they're focused on, and that's probably part of the instruction is, hey, you know what? We need you to get on base because if you don't get on base, this game is over. And then it's like, okay, well, now they're focused on just that. And so if you could focus them more on the, again, the process and the performance um, and ask them, like we talked about before, kind of that weak link, if you ask them, what way do you want me to talk to you? And they might not know. And then it's up to you as the coach to come up with different ways of asking them to do things and finding out which way they actually respond the best. So kind um, of the, the communication of like, how do I how do I phrase it the best? Correct. How do I phrase it the best? And you can even ask them, sometimes they'll have enough self-awareness where they can tell you, they can say like, yeah, man, when you tell me, like, I got to get on base, like, it freaks me out. Whereas if you tell me, like, hey, you know what? Like, most times with this pitch, what you're going to want to do is kind of hit a, a bunt. Or some people would suggest that you would do it this way. So it's not kind of a demand direct. It's kind of like some people think this is a good way to do it. Um, sometimes they respond better to that. And if they have the self-awareness, they might tell you, like, yeah, actually, you know what? When, when you tell me do the best you can do, and that's all you say, I feel so confident going out there. But when you start giving me a whole lot of instruction, I kind of get lost. And I'm like, I guess I'm just going to try something. Do, do you think there's players out there that respond well to just like the whole team yelling at them? <laughs> there are. It is. It's crazy. It's crazy. But there are. There are players who actually are better when when they have that sort of um, kind of the team is all against them and then they have to go out there and perform and then they perform better. And it's like, I mean, it looks horrible, but it's some, some players that works. And, and so the team starts to learn that about that player. And then the team starts. To <laughs> <do that. laughs> Sometimes you get players like what Simon was talking about, where they consistently don't feel like they're performing their best. So like what I would phrase is like somebody going into a slump. So on my team, we literally, we have like a, uh, like a hero of the league. Like this guy is just like, he's kicked home runs. Like people love him. And when he is on, he is top, he is a top five player. Um, but I have seen him go through a three or four game, just a, like a slump where it feels like every time he kicks, he's popping it up or defensively his hands may not be working as well as they should this year. I mean, he's on fire. Um, and I, he definitely came out of like last year, a small slump, but what is it about that? Like when a player is in a slump or when they feel like it, uh, I mean, is, are there any things that mentally they can try to overcome it or ways that they could bounce back? Yeah. I think that a big part of it is, um, again, the awareness, like, cause when you're playing awesome, a lot of times you're not paying attention to stuff that you would normally pay attention to if you're not playing well. So if I'm not playing well, I criticize everything. I judge everything. I try and analyze everything. So it's kind of like paralysis by over analysis. I just try and try, try and figure everything out. And that gets me away from my consistency. It gets me away from the way that I've been playing. And then when I'm playing well, I'm probably not paying attention to any of those things because I'm having a blast. And so it's asking yourself to actually, when you're having the top, you know, performance of, of all time, you actually do want to sit down and ask yourself, what am I doing that's so effective? And if you can start learning that stuff about yourself, you'll be out of your slump a lot faster than if you just leave it up to chance. Um, so I guess remembering that, I mean, like going back and being like, 
uh, I think you said this in one of your other uh, interviews, but like remembering like, what was I feeling? What was I going through at that time? Correct. Like, what you yeah. leading into it? Yeah. So what was I feeling? What was I going through at the time? Was I telling myself anything particularly? Because some people, they'll use cue words to tell themselves what to do. So like, for example, somebody ready to catch the ball might tell themselves like a cue word, like soft hands. Because if you have hard hands, they're going to bounce right off your hands. But if you have soft hands, they're just going to kind of like flow into them. And so it's like using that phrase and stuff like that, if that's effective and, and you know, you're doing it and you might not be intentionally or consciously doing it. So it's trying to figure that stuff out. And so after a game, if you play really poorly, write some of the stuff that you remember down just in terms of how you were feeling, what you were thinking. If you have a game that was like the highlight of your career, take just two minutes and sit down and write down some of the things that were going through your head or some of the things you were feeling. So. Um, yeah, so that goes, I mean, that goes into basically like after the game, right? Uh, dealing with success or dealing with failure. I know that uh, there's actually a lot of the, I would say the, probably probably both, both ends of the spectrum, top teams and bottom teams of saying, uh, hey, we just lost and we're all upset about it. Usually people are somewhat aware of, you know, like a bad inning or a bad few innings or things like that. Um, what are maybe ways of dealing with failure and then dealing with success? Like success is like happiness. Right. Like having way more beers than you should and that side of it. But what about, what about the failure side, I guess, first? So the failure side, there's a, a sports psychologist who works at Cal State Fullerton, um, Revisa, Ken Revisa, and he came up with a brilliant kind of analogy. And basically what he told this, the teams that he's worked with is when you have a really, you know, poor performance, flush the toilet. Um, and, and what he means by that is, is all of us, when we're done, you know, defecating and, and we're done cleaning ourselves up, we flush the toilet. We don't think about it again. We don't think about trying to go to the bathroom, what we did. We don't think about where the, you know, feces goes. We don't think about any of that stuff. We're just done, <laughs> right? Right. It, it is flushed and it's gone and we're refocused on whatever we're doing next. We're like, well, I took care of that. Now I'm moving on to something different. And so he used that um, with a couple <laughs> of very successful Cal State Fullerton baseball teams um, where it's just, it's flush the toilet. It's just be done with it. Like think about how crappy it was and then flush the toilet and be done with it and move forward. But what if it's like a giant epic turd that you can't forget? <laughs> <laughs> Toilet's clogged. Toilet's clogged. Well, so in, in part of it is it's processing, right? So it's, it's, you've got to process. What was it that we did not execute? Well, what is it that we didn't kind of get done? Um, right. What were things that we weren't focused on? What were things where, you know, if a particular part of a play had finished differently, how would that have impacted the game? So you want to process what you can do differently before you flush the toilet. Because if you, if you just flush the toilet, you might not learn anything from your mistakes. <laughs> so you kind of want to, you know, kind of process things with the team and then kind of be like, okay, let's flush the toilets. Let's be done with it. But I, I think that, you know, I've worked with a couple teams using that kind of analogy and, and it's been effective. It's, it's again, the, the more consistently you use it, the easier it's going to be. And it's actually one that you can ask most players to go home and practice and they're pretty good at practicing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the questions that we'd ask on a prior podcast was like the pregame ritual and things like that. I know just to kind of bring it back, but like, uh, you talked about like, what was I feeling, you know, in the game that I played well, or what was I feeling, you know, like, what was I going through, things like that. Does the pregame matter? Like me making sure that I eat X, Y, Z, that I wear my socks, that I wear, you know, certain things like that I do the same ritual beforehand. Are those things important? Yeah, the more consistent they are, the easier it is for you to kind of assess that you're going to play a certain way. So sometimes when players tell me, like, I never know who's showing up, if I'm showing up as the hero or I'm showing up as the person who's in a slump, I don't know until I start playing. A lot of times those players have no pregame routine, whereas the player who says I'm consistent, I kind of know how I play or the clutch player, you know, they're like they probably have a pretty consistent routine. Um, whether it's pre-game, in the game, or post-game, where they, whatever they're doing consciously or unconsciously, it's, it's working for them because of, the, because of the consistency. So because you can control your pre-game routine, um, 
in what you're doing, I definitely think that that can be very effective. And then you can look at kind of, again, how you're regulating kind of how you feel as in how excited or how kind of down you are. Like I said, the player who's bouncing off the wall before a game and that gets them jazzed and ready to go. And the player who just wants to be focused and kind of in it before the game, they know themselves well enough to know that they need to be consistent that way. So they regulate kind of how they're feeling. Um, so like you mentioned, go skydiving before every game and you're just mm-hmm. gonna lightning. Just cost a lot. True. Very true. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So what's, what's crazy, John, uh, I know you know nothing about our league, right? I mean, I, yeah, I know you did some research, so I shouldn't say that, but uh, it's crazy how in our past podcast, you have identified instantly players that I recognize, like uh, in one of our previous podcasts, we had the, the person who has won the most championships. She mm-hmm. talks about routine and she talks about uh, these types of things. We also had one of her teammates on who has also won championships and he's like, your best games, I don't even care what I'm doing. You know, like, he's like, I back up to the fence, I run up crazy and just see what happens. And it's just these different mentalities um, that you've, you've kind of pinpointed in a lot of these different things about, well, sometimes when you're just not thinking, you play your best. So I guess kind of in wrapping this all up, like, are there exercises people could do before the game in the game or after the game, I know that you've already kind of touched on some of these, but just as we kind of wrap it up, like that you might say, Hey, these would be best practices or things that could be uh, tangible to take away from this. Certainly. Yeah. And thank you. I I appreciate that. I really, I think, you know, that's, that's awesome to hear that and to, to know that you are thinking about athletes who this kind of like, you know, they've, they've said the same thing in different words and stuff like that. I think that's, that's amazing. And I think that's one of the reasons that I, become so captivated by sports psychology is because all of us are speaking maybe different languages, but the same kind of concepts and the same kind of stuff coming through. Well, and, and just to, to tangent off this, you even mentioned like, Hey, I I don't even know what, who's going to show up, things like that. We have a team that is like a great team or they are a good team, but they can't rely on players. And it has, stress their captain out and it has put them like near the bottom of the league. But when everybody's there and they don't have to worry, like they play well. And so it's just, I just think that it's really neat. Uh, I've really appreciated having you on. Uh, And so, yeah, I guess if there's just any techniques that we can kind of pass on to, you know, a large community of people, like I would love that. Certainly. Yeah. I think that one of the top things I would suggest is each individual, if you would care to take the time, think about your best performance and just think whether that was, you know, a game you won, a game you lost, a game where you were first starting or a game that was more recent. Just think of your best game and think about, okay, so what did I enjoy? Start writing down all the stuff you enjoyed, whether it was the weather, whether it was like the beer before the game, whether it was, you know, the celebration, um, you know, when you made the play, just think of all the stuff that like really makes you so interested or or so engaged in kickball like why are you playing and then think about that best performance and start kind of getting a list together of this is the stuff that I play for this is the stuff that I show up on Sundays for and then when you have that list it gives you a really good kind of map on this is what I need to kind of try to make more so I think that the the more you can figure out about that stuff and the more you can make it personal to yourself, the more you can make it like, okay, so this is what I thrive on and this is what makes things fun, the better you're going to be at recognizing and becoming more aware of this stuff. Now, obviously, some things you have a lot more control over, such as like your routine, what you're thinking about, sometimes how you feel, some of the things you have zero control. So like I said, the weather, if you were like my best game, oh, the weather was awesome. It's like, well, you don't control that, but that would be awesome if you know that you- Some of that is tangible. And I can agree with that. What happens when maybe those things like, as a, I'm a second kicker. And so what happens like, what would you recommend? I mean, I know you've kind of talked about this, but like when some of those things aren't going your way, best way to reset. Again, resetting is just saying, okay, so it's at zero. So what is my goal? What is my purpose? And so if I'm a second kicker, but I'm not a second kicker because the first kicker's out, then I just think, what is my purpose? My purpose before was different. My purpose was to kind of get a, a player kind of moving forward on the bases, whereas now my purpose is trying to get on base. 
And so that purpose needs to be my focus. And then once I have that focus, I don't focus on the outcome, which is getting on base, but rather the performance. So what do I need to do to make that happen? Um, and, and like we talked about with, you know, if, if I pay attention to nothing, if I'm not thinking at all and that works for me, let's do that. If I'm paying attention and focusing on what steps I'm taking, where I make contact with the ball, that sort of stuff, then that's where I'm going to pay attention and put that kind of mindset into my performance. And if you don't know, if you don't know the strategy or the technique or the tactics that your team is using, pick somebody on the team who you like, who you know will be favorable to kind of uh, talk to you and not make you feel like you don't know anything um, and ask them like, okay, so what am I doing here? What, what's my purpose? And then have them explain it to you. And the more you do that, the more you play with the same team and the more the seasons go on, the better and better you're going to be as a performer and the better and better the team is going to perform. Well, John, you've been beyond helpful and probably a guest that we'll never forget. And I, I really appreciate you coming on, on the podcast with us. Yeah, man, it was enjoyable. I really liked it. Um, if, if you guys want to follow up anytime, just let me know because this was, this was fun. This is the first kickball thing I've done, so <laughs> add that to my list. Yeah, very fair. <laughs> you can add it to your resume. It's a big resume builder. <laughs> Hey, well, John, thank you again, and uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Awesome. Thank you. You guys have a good night. You too. You too. Take care.